This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Please open in your Bible now to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes 6 is where we're going to be for the duration of our morning together. I've loved preaching the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we're opening there, I hope that you'll turn there in your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Bible in the rack in front of you. It's Ecclesiastes 6, it'll be page 556 in the Pew Bible if you're using that one. As we begin preparing our hearts to hear and receive the very words of God, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, I pray that we would receive now wisdom. We would receive now insight. And we receive now joy from you in Christ. I pray that our joy would increase through the preaching of these words this morning. I pray for my words the things I've written down, the meditations of my heart. I pray that they are pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed my rock and my redeemer. If there's anything that I plan to say that is unhelpful for the people, would you help me to skip over that and only deliver to these precious people what is good for them and edifying for their souls? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I've known a lot of great people in my life. And I have plenty of heroes, some alive, some dead, some that I know personally, some that I've never had the pleasure of meeting. But if I could be known to be like any one person in the entire world, it would be my grandpa Don. Uh, My parents are divorced, and both are remarried, and so I had each of my mom and dad's dads, and then I have two other men— Uh, that I've had in my life, who I've called grandpa. And honestly, all of them were great. All warm, all caring, all generous. Not often traits you'd find in in all men, but all of them were warm, caring, and generous. I have great memories of each of them. But I thought a lot as I studied Ecclesiastes 6 this week about my grandpa Don. Um, Sometime I want to tell you more about my grandpa Ray, too. He's my, my dad's dad. Um, When my dad was a teenager, my grandpa Ray, uh, he and my grandma were on their way home from a New Year's Eve party, so well after midnight, and they saw a car that was stranded on the side of the road, and my grandpa was a real helper, and so he pulled over to help the stranded driver, and as he had the hood up and was looking at the engine, uh, a driver who had way too much to drink smashed my grandpa between two cars and his leg was basically shattered. It was really a miracle that he survived. It was really a miracle that um, he didn't have more uh, damage, but he was in the hospital for a long time. He was out of work. It created incredible hardship for the family. He was really never able to bend that leg uh, again. Yet, I don't think in the 20-plus years that he and, and I shared on earth, I ever once heard him complain or say he couldn't do something. And uh, he never really st- stopped trying to help people. He was such a helper and a servant. Uh, that's the story. That's my grandpa Ray. That's a story for a different time, but I want to tell you about him some other time. But as I read chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, I uh, looked kind of back at chapter 5 and forward to chapter 7, I thought a lot about my grandpa Don this week. When I was a little boy, 
my grandpa Don would come over and he would pick me up, just me and him, and he would take me to Hardee's. You can still find Hardee's around. Uh, they used to have this indoor ball pit, and, and I, I love the indoor ball pit, so he would buy me you know, breakfast or lunch, and he would sit there and he would drink his coffee after I ate three bites of whatever he bought me and wanted to jump in the ball pit, and he would just sit there and he would drink his coffee and uh, watch me play, and then we'd go over and we'd see my grandma. He'd watch me come and play Little League. He'd watch me come and swim. He'd take me golfing. And uh, most of that he was able actually to do in his later 50s and early 60s because he, he took retirement from the flour mill that he worked at. Oh, my grandpa Don was so funny. He would just tease and tease and tease. Uh, most of it not very PC by today's standards. Uh, he was generous. He was kind gentle. I don't think I ever heard him raise his voice. Ever. My mom doesn't think she ever heard him raise his voice. And he, he loved his family, and he had a, a joy in life. I, I, I try to tell Holly about him a lot, because I, I want to be like him, but I just don't feel like I can ever do him justice. Have, have, you, ever, have you ever felt like if there was one thing, one time, one person from your past that really kind of helped, helps explain you, and you just can't tell your friends, you can't tell your spouse quite enough about them, you just wish you could, if I could just go back to one time, one person, and have you meet this person, I really think you would, you would get what I want to be like in my life, or, or why I've been shaped by this. If, if I had one shot at that, I would, I would take Holly back, and I would, I would make sure she got to know my grandpa Don. Um, he died before we started dating. So it was like 14, 15, maybe even 16 years ago now. Um, and as I remember all the, the good memories I have of him, there is one thing that I regret not doing more of. And I think mostly it was because I was younger and, and I just didn't have much life experience, and I, I don't think I quite understood what was right in front of me. Because now, if, if, if I had an afternoon with my grandpa, I'd love to hear the jokes, I'd love to be teased by him, but what I'd really want to hear him talk about was what his secret was. Because I think he had it figured out. And I know he wasn't perfect, and I'm sure he wasn't always as happy and as joyful. And he probably did get angry. He, I know he had bad days. But he achieved something that is really, really rare in life. He had a lot of joy, and he was really content. And here's the thing. He wasn't rich. He wasn't even close. He wasn't famous. He didn't make a wide mark on the world. But as I look back on my time with him and as I look back on his life, he had something far more valuable. He had it figured out that those things, money, wealth, leaving just kind of an indelible legacy, like those aren't really as important as people think they are and they don't last. It's better to receive from God the life that he has given you with gladness 
and live that life with joy than it is to spend your life wishing you had something else. That's what I think my grandpa Don understood. It's better to live the life that God has given you and be glad for it than to spend all your time wishing you had something else. I am going to be 40 later this year in just a few months, and I would love to sit down for a couple of hours over coffee, even if we had to drink coffee from Hardee's, with my grandpa, and I would love to talk with him about life. I learned, I have so many good memories. There's, there's a lot really there. Um, but I really wish I just had a few more years with him. If he would have just been alive for a few more years, because a lot changed in me in the three or four years after he died. I, I got married, I became a dad, and I feel like I would have been in so much better of a position just to sit there and soak in his wisdom. And, and here's the last thing. I don't think my grandpa would have considered himself a wise man. He wasn't always spouting off these proverbial-like truisms. He just lived his life content and full and pleased with it. But I think if he would have, and he would have been able to articulate it, and if I would have raised the right questions, what he would have told me about how he came to do that would have sounded a lot like, what we're going to read this morning in Ecclesiastes 6. And so if you're not there yet, let's go to Ecclesiastes 6. And as you're setting up, let me just tell you, there's this kind of progression in, in Ecclesiastes 5 and then 6, and we'll do it next week in, verse, in chapter 7. It goes from talking about, in, verse, or in chapter 5, the, what I would kind of call the veneer of spirituality, and then it gets into the real stuff, the real mess of life. Uh, this is something that should very much be at the forefront of our thoughts. It's not new in any way to think that there are people, maybe all of us to some degree, who want to appear one way publicly while we are being different kinds of people privately. It is not new for people to hope others see them very differently from who they really are. And for us as Christians or churchgoers or people who want to just be seen as good in the world, one of the ways that that manifests is, is how we are as people of faith. And so in Ecclesiastes 5, the preacher, the writer says, be careful how you go to the household of God. Are you going there for God or yourself? Are you here, he asks, to praise God rightly, biblically, however God is to be praised and however he commands praise, or are you here so that you can be known as a pious, upright person, but really you're not much here for God, you're here for the show, you're here for yourself, you're here for, in, for appearances' sake. And in the second half of chapter 5, is what are you like when you leave the church? Again, you don't have to work hard to imagine that there are people who want to appear godly and generous and loving in the church, but in real life, with others in other places, they're bitter and they're cruel. 
And they care only for worldly things. And that's the the second part of chapter 5. It says, be careful with money. Be careful with the world. If that's all you want, if you only want the world, if you only want what the world offers, you'll never have enough of it to satisfy you because enough doesn't exist. If all you want is money, you'll never get enough to be satisfied. So before talking about what is truly valuable in life then, it's a lot of what verse, chapter 7 is. Chapter 6 starts out with a kind of story. Someone who has wealth, but has little else. And for everything you think that wealth might bring you, for everything we think that some of these worldly goals might bring us, it actually has very little meaning. So let's, let's read. We'll work a little bit. We'll do this in, in four sections this morning. Starting in verse 1, Ecclesiastes 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So the setup here is a man. Possibly this is autobiographical. The writer, the preacher, Solomon, king of Israel after his father David. He's talking about all the things that he had. Wealthy beyond imagination. He bought or built everything his mind can conceive of. And he's known all over the world, yet he's not happy. I love what Martin Luther said about these verses. He called, these, he called them a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life, and yet he does not have one. Love that description. He lacks nothing for a good life, and yet he does not have one. There's an almost identical story told in the previous chapter, verses 13 and 14, and both are ironic. The circumstances are a little bit different, but the endings are are basically the same. In chapter 5, there's a, a grievous evil. There's a rich man who hoards what he has. And the irony there is he loses it. He loses what he's been trying to hoard in a bad business venture. Before he can enjoy it. Here, in chapter 6, the man has everything he needs, but he's still not satisfied. And the result is that neither man gets to enjoy what he has prized or worked so hard to acquire. Whether it's hoarding or just simply being unsatisfied with, I just don't quite have enough. Have you ever known somebody? Have you ever been this person? Saving and planning and socking away, yet never feeling like now I have enough, so now I can enjoy, now I can spend. Or have you ever known somebody who saved and hoarded, and then something tragic befell them, and they never really got to enjoy it? That's what Solomon is asking here. 
So let's continue on in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he is. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All right, so Ecclesiastes is a dark book. It's a depressing book in a lot of ways, but even in the context of what comes before and after this, even in the midst of a dark book, these verses kind of feel like a low point. Look at the contrast that's being made. It's it's hyperbole. But the preacher is saying all the things that people might find valuable in achieving in life, a big family some people might want, living into old age, being unthinkably wealthy, don't matter if you can't be satisfied with him. He even says, if that's going to be the case, if you're going to have everything that somebody might want in life, and you're still not going to be satisfied, maybe it's just better not to be born at all. And then the really depressing thought. If you're not going to enjoy life, what's actually the point? If you can't enjoy life, What's the point? He just says, aren't we all going to die anyways? See what I mean? This is, this is the depre- in a depressing book, this is where it goes the lowest. If it feels like despondence here, that's because it is. He's using a, a literary technique of bringing us into this despondence to show us the true meaning of living a full life. The, the preacher has tried everything in, his, in the world to make him happy and satisfy him. And, and he's beginning to turn us toward the conclusion, it certainly can't be money. But it can't even be many good things. Like children. Or finding our worth and definition and value of a full life, even in relationships with other people. The only way that we're going to have a full life is if we know the one true living God and if we seek our satisfaction from him. And we'll talk about that, but before we do that, just a minute at the bottom here, a minute in the the depths. Ecclesiastes has to be thorough. The writer is very thorough. I've been thinking as long as we've been preaching through this book. Why so long? Why does the writer not just come out and say, life without God is meaningless, so live for the glory of God? Other than that, this is the word of God, and God must have wanted it this way. One simple answer I've come to is that life is long. And it can be awfully hard. And it has pains. And it has extremes. And we have wildly different experiences in life. 
And if we're going to know anything about it, it will take time to process. You cannot microwave spirituality. You cannot flash boil wisdom. It takes work and it takes time. And so I've, I've wondered, why does Ecclesiastes do this? Why so in the depths? Why so long of this? Why so much of this? Because this is a slow boil. Because things don't taste good in the microwave for the most part. You've got to take time. You've got to do it right. Ecclesiastes does life right. The, the whole Bible is like this. You can summarize the, the whole message of the Bible. You can summarize in a, in a sentence or two. But life is more complicated than that. And, and the God who created and is, is so patient with sinners and then who saves and redeems, he's far greater and he deserves more than just a few sentences. The life he's given, when you combine that with the complexities of living in a sinful world and what he's done, and then you just kind of marry all of that with the indescribable majesty of God, it, it takes some time to get right. It takes some time to understand. And if you just want microwave spirituality, you don't want the God of the universe. You don't want the God of the Bible. You don't want a real God. You want a pithy, feel-good God. If you want a real God, here is one. That's what I want. And so I know it's hard to go down deep in here. But when we do it, we find something true and pure. That's what we're reading. That's what we're reading right now. A book about real people's lives. Not veneer, not shine. Deep. Deep spirituality. So verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So the next thing the preacher turns to is warning us against this dissatisfaction that continually comes when we look someplace else. The Bible loves farming pictures. Much of society was agrarian at this point, and so people understood these well. And so this is essentially asking the question, what's the point of working so hard if in the end you have no likely chance of being satisfied with what you've grown. In our cases, it would be achieved. If your work in life, if you, are, if you farm for your food, if you plant and cultivate crops so that you will eat, if you work all your life to feed yourself, the preacher is asking, but when it comes time to eat, you don't like what's on the plate, what's the point? The preacher says if that's going to happen, what's even the reason to focus on the good things of life? Like being wise. If foolish people and wise people both end up wanting what they don't have, why go through the trouble of being wise? He could also say, why go through the trouble of hard work? Why go through any of the trouble? I know a guy who I really want to like. I've known him for a long, long time, but it's, it can be hard to like this guy. He is engaging. 
He's funny. He tells a great story. But every time I talk to him, he's constantly looking around like there might be somebody better to talk to. I've seen, I, I, I mean, I've witnessed him. He, I've felt him do it to me. Just his eyes always a little over my shoulders. And I've seen him do it to a lot of other people as well. And, and I can't, can't help but wonder, how many good conversations and great people has he missed connecting with because he's always looking for something else. He's always looking for someone else. And the preacher says, that's like life. You'll never be able to appreciate what you have if you are always looking for something that might just be a little bit better. So before we go any further, let's just clear up what the Bible usually says about money. What the Bible usually says about money is that by itself, inherently, it's neither good or bad. This is one of the reasons verse 9 is in here. The preacher does not want us to come away from this thinking it's impossible to be rich and know the meaning of life, so we must maybe try to be poor. Maybe poverty is the answer. That's not helpful either. There's a proverb that says it's helpful to be neither rich nor poor. That's good news for us because by global standards, by historical standards, every person in here, every person listening online enjoys a standard of living and a lifestyle in the top 1%, over 1% of any person who has ever lived. And so, if it was impossible to be wealthy and know the meaning of life, we might as well all give up and go home because we're all very rich by geographical and historical standards. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying wealth is bad. He's not saying wisdom is bad. Verse 9 is in here to tell us to look at and appreciate what we have for what it is and not try to make it something more and not try to look and spend our lives searching for something we don't have. Now, it's easy to say things like that. It's easy to say things like that, you know, for those of us with less money, and say, well, sure, you know, you can say we should be glad for what we have, that money isn't the answer, but that's a lot easier for my neighbors to say, because they're rich. You know what? In, In some cases, that might be. I'll just call it like it is. Some people have more money than other people. But that's where we need to remember what Solomon has said up until this point. Money doesn't satisfy. And neither is poverty a virtue. This is a major theme the preacher keeps coming back to. Whether you're focused on the money you have or you're focused on the money you don't have, If that's your goal, you're never going to be fulfilled in life. If your goal is always something you don't have, you're never going to be satisfied. So how do we find contentment? Verse 10. Whatever has come has already been named, and it is known what man is in that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage 
is the, it, and, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he, pass, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what he will be after, what will be after him under the sun? So these verses are basically the halfway point of Ecclesiastes. So he returns in verses 10 and 11 to what has been the refrain of the first part of the book. We're nearing the midway point, the halfway point. And his refrain is, it's pointless to spend your life focused on what you can't have. That's not something new. People have been doing it since the Garden of Eden, and it has never led anywhere but to ruin. Verse 10 is kind of like a proverb that we still hear all the time. We've actually just made it shorter, kind of a a pithier version. You hear people say all the time, it is what it is. The preacher expands on this by saying, man is not able Sorry, sorry. The preacher expands on this by saying, it's not, it's known what man is. It's in other words, it is what it is. In other words, this not only is what it is, this is what it has always been. Finally, man is not able to dispute with a stronger man. It's like a theological version of it is what it is. The stronger man is God. Most of us have probably been here. Maybe we've actually said these words, but surely every one of us has thought at one point or another, I wish something about my life, my circumstances, my choices, consequences, I wish some aspect of my life was a different way. But the truth is, you can't argue with God. And have any expectation of winning. You can't even expect to make some valid points. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote that arguing with God is arguing with the very power that makes you able to argue at all. And then he says it's like cutting off the tree branch that you're sitting on. The book of Job, finally, after almost unimaginable calamity that God has allowed in Job's life. Job comes to God looking for a fight, and God answers Job out of a mighty whirlwind. And Job immediately realizes he's wrong to argue with God, even in the midst of his suffering. And he confesses, I argued against what I did not understand. And then he repents. Folks, arguing with God, C.S. Lewis is right, is this strange existential argument against he who has given us the capacity to argue at all. You won't win. You won't even make good points. The last verse, verse 12, it's like two rhetorical questions. Who knows what's good for a person? He doesn't come right out and say it, but the preacher's answer is God. Church family, 
every single one of us, myself included, will constantly battle believing we know better than he does. That's going to come. The less you're surprised by your impulse to do it, the better. So acknowledging it and understanding what do I do when that impulse comes, that's the key. Every minute we spend arguing with him, either in defiance of him, trying to turn our back on him and run from him, because life hasn't turned out the way we wanted, every minute of that is just vanity. It won't lead anywhere but to our destruction. He says life passes like a shadow. Not a shadow on a lamp in the evening where the shadow stays stationary on the wall, but a shadow like a cloud on a sunny day with a good breeze, it passes in a moment. That's what life is. Life is a vapor. It goes by so fast. Don't spend your days arguing with God because it will only be wasted days. Instead, Embrace what God has given you, the days that he's given you, and joyfully spend them with him. And the second question is then about what comes after death. Now, without, without this question, this would just kind of remain an incredibly depressing chapter. Essentially, the message of this chapter without this very last statement would be, your life is what it is, and then you die. But he asked this one last question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What we can see now is the preacher is directing us to think toward a grander picture still. Within the context of the whole Bible, we see that the answer to this question is that there is something after life under the sun. Revelation 21.5 says that God is making all things new. One day, life under the sun here will be no more. And what's a greater promise still is that every person whom God has called and ransomed and redeemed will live and reign with him forever. And so when we think, well, life is what it is, there's a way to say yes but also know life is much more than what it is. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for the forgiveness of all those who place their faith in him. In John 10, 11, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the shepherd of everybody looking to him to make sense of their life. If you wonder, what is this life that, I'm give, uh, that I've been given? What is this life that I'm, I'm, I'm living? 
it won't really make ultimate sense apart from life in Jesus Christ and hope in him. It's why people go from thing to thing to thing to thing in the world. They try things that they can buy. They try things that, they can, that, that will bring their body pleasure. They try things that they think they can build. But things that you build always fall down. And you run out of stuff to buy. Even people disappoint you. You can't put all of your hope into the things of this world because God's going to make all things new. They won't last. Instead of looking around this place, trying to turn this world into a kind of heaven, instead, look to the chief shepherd and desire the unfading crown of glory. Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He said also in the Gospel of John that whoever drinks from his living water will have their thirst finally quenched. If you're looking for things under the sun in this world, the promise of Ecclesiastes is the promise of the whole Bible. You'll live here. If that's what you're looking for. You'll live here for a little while, and then you'll be gone. That's the truth. That's the reality. If your life is focused here, if that's what you're about, you'll, you'll be here for a little while, and then you'll be gone. But if you are looking to Christ, you'll be here today, and sure, some of your circumstances will be hard. Much of life is difficult and there is suffering. But after this, for everybody in Christ, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You'll be crowned a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God, and you will live with him forever, free from all of the things that make this place difficult. Free from it being what it is in this life, because there's so much more to come. And so this chapter, though dark, ends with a, a, a ray of sunshine that pierces even the blackest darkness. The writer asked, well, what, what's more than this? And the rhetorical answer is so, so, so much more for those who are in Christ, who place their faith in him and they're looking for hope and satisfaction and joy and contentment in him. I hope that's you. You can do that. It takes a lifetime in some cases. It takes a long time. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk with you more about it after the service. There's a lot of people who'd love to talk with you more about it. But I hope that you will look to the chief shepherd and his appearing as your hope, not to the things of this world. For he comes from above this world. He comes from outside of this world. And he comes into this world to save and redeem. Let's pray. Father, may you be praised. May we find our joy and our contentment. And may all of our hope be placed in you. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, 
bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.